Good morning. Today we're going to be looking at uh, a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12, and I've entitled this sermon, The Leaven of the Pharisees. If you take your Bible and start around Matthew 5, flipping through the pages and reading only the subheadings, then you'll see something like this list that I've compiled here. The Beatitudes, Salt and Light, Christ came to fulfill the law. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love your enemies, giving to the needy, the Lord's Prayer, fasting, anxiety, judging, the golden rule, build your house on the rock. Several chapters of teaching from Jesus. And it wraps up with, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes always based their teaching on the foundation of some other great teacher's authority. They would quote other rabbis to demonstrate that their teachings aligned. See, my teaching aligns with Gamaliel. Or, this is an agreement with what Rabbi Hillel said, or whoever. Jesus, the Son of God, needed no one else's authority to make his statements valid. There is no greater authority. He spoke as if he had the right to make these statements, and the difference was noticeable. Now starting at chapter 8, the subject matter of the subheadings changes dramatically. Here's the next list. Jesus cleanses a leper, the faith of a centurion, Jesus heals many, Jesus calms a storm, Jesus casts out demons, Jesus heals a paralytic, a girl restored to life and a woman healed, Jesus heals two blind men, Jesus heals a mute man. Notice that the emphasis now is not so much on his authority to teach, but his authority over the physical realm, the natural realm, and the spiritual realm. And then he exerts his authority to declare who will make up the twelve and what the disciples are to do. To declare that persecution will come. How faithful obedience to him will impact earthly relationships. And how he will reward those who receive him. And he exerts his authority to declare judgment on those who reject him. By his works and by his words, he is declaring himself to be the Messiah, King of Israel. Now, if it was simply by his words, we would rightly ask, by what authority do you make yourself out to be this Messiah? I mean, if someone came along declaring themselves to be the next Prime Minister of Canada, we'd want to see some credentials. We'd need to have some validation that they're doing more than just blowing smoke out of their ears. And what if they took it a step further and said, well, actually, the whole entire world is going to be gathered into a global kingdom, and I'm going to rule it. Now we'd be more concerned that this individual was not mentally healthy and needs care, counseling, and likely some medication. But if this individual, after making such a claim, said, and now I'm going to demonstrate that I actually have the power and authority to do so, and then proceeded to legitimately heal every individual in the vicinity of every illness, every deformity, every disability, bringing them to complete wholeness. We'd be more ready to listen, wouldn't we? 
Imagine Lake Ridge, Lake Ridge Health Oshawa is emptied. Lake Ridge Health Port Perry, emptied. Lake Ridge Health Bowmanville, emptied. The nursing homes and the extended cares, no longer needed. Why? Because every single individual has been restored to full health. The associated living centers, all emptied. This is a totally different thing, isn't it? And what if this person brought someone who had died back to life so that even the grave was no barrier or limitation to this man? I suspect now we'd be open to not just listening to this man, but following him. <laughs> so it's no surprise that the religious elite considered Jesus a threat. And that is precisely what he was to them, a threat. In the same way that a man would be a threat to you if you were harming his family. Matthew records in chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without, like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus loved his people. They were his. And the religious leaders were supposed to act as stewards over the people, caring for their needs and leading them well in the absence of the king. But instead, the king returns to find that the many traditions that the religious leaders had implemented placed great burdens on his people, and in some cases, took financial advantage of his people. It also tended to distort their understanding of God's character. And this is in part why Jesus overthrew the tables of the money changers in the temple. He was angered over the way that God's reputation was being distorted, God's house of worship was being corrupted, and God's people were being abused. So here we see the response of the religious leaders. First, the Pharisees challenged Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 2. Look, they say, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, because they were harvesting grain with their hands while they walked and rolling the grains between their hands to, to rub the chaff off and then eating those grains. Now, by criticizing his disciples, remember they said, your disciples are doing this, they're actually criticizing Jesus' leadership and training of these men. But Jesus responds by correcting their distortion of God's law. There was no law prohibiting the plucking of grain to eat on the Sabbath. In fact, gleaning handfuls of grain from a neighbor's field to satisfy one's immediate hunger was explicitly permitted in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. What you couldn't do on the Sabbath was harvest for profit. So Jesus corrects this invalid interpretation of the Pharisees. He reasserts what God's law actually states and allows— and then reaffirms what was always God's purpose for the institution of the Sabbath. In the process of doing so, he chastises them by asking twice, Have you not read? And he asserts his own authority by making statements about what God's intent was for the Sabbath, and by stating that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Later in chapter 12, Jesus is approached by Pharisees and scribes, 
Now, scribes and Pharisees often worked together. The scribes were responsible for accurately copying out by hand the books of the Old Testament, or, as they would refer to them, the Law and the Prophets. The Pharisees were tasked with the responsibility to interpret the law for the people. And together they approached Jesus and asked to see a sign, one of astronomical proportions, a sign from the heavens. But if you recall the second list of subheadings that I read aloud to you, Jesus has already demonstrated many, many signs through his healings, none of which were done in secret. He even brought a young girl back to life. Was it not enough or simply not enough for the hard-hearted? What is tragic is that they fail to realize that Jesus is a sign from heaven. And ironically, they themselves were validating that fact. Do you remember several months ago when we did the mini-series entitled Christmas Playlist? The last one we looked at, and I believe it was in between Christmas and New Year's, was the Song of Simeon as as our last uh, sermon in that series. And I read for you this passage in Luke 2, verse 34. Simeon prophesied, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. The Pharisees were certainly fulfilling that prophecy, weren't they? He was the sign that they were opposing. Jesus refuses to be a sideshow. He's not there to perform for them. He tells them that the only sign they will get is the sign of Jonah. Here, Jesus foretells his death, burial, and resurrection for the second time, actually. And again, he chastises them by saying that they... The ones to whom God chose to reveal himself in his word, they would be condemned by none other than Gentiles, the men of Nineveh, who repented at the preaching of Jonah, and the queen of Sheba, who traveled great distances to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And before these scribes and Pharisees stands the very Son of God, far greater than Jonah, far greater than Solomon, and they refuse to listen and repent. In fact, just a few verses back in the same chapter, they declare that Jesus' power comes from the devil rather than God. In chapter 15, the Pharisees and scribes travel all the way from Jerusalem, some 140 kilometers or so, on foot, on foot, to accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the established traditions. He, in turn, accuses them of breaking God's own commandments for the sake of their tradition. What he's saying is that they have chosen to elevate their word over God's word. He calls them hypocrites and reveals their hearts, which they thought were hidden, but nothing, nothing is hidden from Jesus. Now the disciples say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? From the disciples' perspective, Jesus is poking the bear, as it were. I wonder what they said amongst themselves at times. They thought that the Messiah was going to come and roust Rome and free the Israelites, but instead, Jesus seems to leave Rome alone and goes after the established religious system in order to teach them what God is truly like and what true worship is. In today's passage, 
we see that the antagonism on the part of the religious leaders is taken up another notch. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, if you haven't already done so, to Matthew chapter 16. Let's read verses 1 through 12 together. Matthew 16, verses 1 to 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the disciples began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. God, we are grateful and excited that your word is living and powerful. It is valid for all people, for all of time. So it's valid for us today. Help us to learn what you intend from this passage. Let us have open ears and open hearts ready to listen and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So first we get the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the very first words that we read in this passage. The Pharisees and Sadducees came. Now, Jesus is back in Jewish territory here. In the very first, sorry, the very last verse of chapter 15, we're told that Jesus returned with his disciples by boat to uh, Magadan or Magadan or however we pronounce that. Now, again, our North American lens has us missing the importance of this small statement at the beginning of chapter 16. Now, previously, we read that the Pharisees came to Jesus, and then later the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus. We mentioned already that the scribes and Pharisees worked together, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees were rivals. Now, together, they made up the group called the Sanhedrin. It was a ruling body of about 70 men. The Sadducees held only to the literal interpretation of the text of Scripture. But the Pharisees upheld their oral traditions on par with Scripture. The Sadducees did not believe in the unseen spiritual world, nor did they believe in the res resurrection or the afterlife. They believed that the soul perished at death. That's why they were sad, you see. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in all of that. But they endlessly debated how to interpret and apply the scriptures, often taking things far above and beyond what God required and judging anyone who did not go as far as they did. In fact, 
they would go so far as to tithe the herbs and spices that they had in their homes. Now, while you might consider being a Pharisee and caring that much about obeying God's word to be a good thing, Jesus condemned them for taking something that was intended to help and protect his people and turning it into a heavy burden on people. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus said, The scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So what are bitter opponents like Pharisees and Sadducees doing together? The Sadducees were elitist and aristocratic, while the Pharisees were more representative of the working people. The Sadducees had a political focus, while the Pharisees were focused on religious matters. The Sadducees were centered around the temple in Jerusalem, while the Pharisees controlled the synagogues in the villages. The Sadducees were friendly with Rome, while the Pharisees were not so much. Why unite? Well, the Pharisees had had many run-ins with Jesus, mostly due to their prioritizing of the oral traditions. But now the Sadducees were becoming concerned that Jesus was going to attract unwanted Roman attention and upset the status quo. Being far more political, They were concerned that Jesus would endanger their power structure, their influence in both Jerusalem and with the Roman governor. And so at this point, it becomes expedient for them to band together against a common enemy. And just like the scribes and Pharisees earlier, they ask for a sign. And Matthew states that the purpose was to test Jesus. Despite Everything that Jesus had already done, all the ways in which he had already demonstrated that he fulfilled all the requirements for the Messiah, they ignored it, they dismissed it, and now they looked for a way to trap him. In testing him, their goal was to have him do something or say something for which they could discredit and condemn him. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows precisely what their motivations are, and he has no need to prove himself to them. In fact, nothing he might do would even change their minds anyway. Do you remember when he healed the man's withered hand with a command in chapter 12? The Pharisees conspired to destroy him because he healed on the Sabbath. When he cast out a demon later in the same chapter, they, didn't, they, they couldn't deny the miracle They simply attributed the power to Satan. Nothing Jesus did was going to change their minds and, more importantly, their hard hearts. They stubbornly refused to acknowledge who he was and, consequently, what their obligation and responsibility was toward him. Jesus chastises them for their hardness of heart. He says, in essence, You guys want a sign in the skies? Look, you're able to read simple signs. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight, right? We know those ones here. But you can't read. No, you refuse to read the signs of the times that are all around you because you are spiritual adulterers. You are supposed to belong to God, but you've given your heart to another. You will get no sign except the sign that will be there for everyone to see the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus leaves with his disciples and crosses the Sea of Galilee again. 
Now the disciples discover upon landing on the other side that they forgot to pack basic provisions like bread. Jesus is still in the process of training his disciples and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But rather than stopping to think of what he might mean by that, they simplistically think they're getting a reprimand about not packing bread. Jesus genuinely reprimands them then. He says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Jesus has every right to be frustrated with his disciples, doesn't he? How could they possibly think that a small oversight like forgetting the bread would be an issue for Jesus? But aren't we just like that? Don't we marvel at the fact that he's all-powerful and all-knowing one minute and then panic the next when something goes wrong, wondering what we're going to do now, as if Jesus must have dozed off and missed something or that he's somehow unwilling or unable to come through for us this time? Jesus isn't upset with them over the fact that they forgot the bread, but Jesus is upset with them over the fact that after all that they've witnessed him doing in the past two to two and a half years, they are still not resting in his character and his love for them. He longs for you and me to do the same, to fully trust in him and rest in the truth of who he is and what his heart is toward us. And then Jesus repeats his warning. What is this leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees to which he refers? Back in chapter 13, the chapter full of parables, Jesus used leaven as a positive example, saying that the kingdom of heaven might start as something small, but soon it pervades everything. Throughout most of scripture, however, leaven is seen as symbolic of sin, again, with its pervasive nature. And here, Jesus is speaking of the hardness of hearts, the unbelief of both these groups. The evidence is there, clearly visible to any and all, but they persistently refuse to believe. And just as it only takes a little leaven to cause the entire lump of dough to rise, so too it only takes a refusal to believe and obey God in what we might consider a minor thing to begin that leavening process that will soon pervade our entire lives and our way of thinking. Brothers and sisters, friends, we need to heed this warning because we are just as susceptible to it as they were. This is how God tends to work in a person's life. He, he reveals a little to a person and then he waits for that person to act on what has been revealed. He convicts us through the Holy Spirit of some area of sin in our life and then we have the responsibility to act on that conviction. Now we can do one of two things. We can A, recognize it, acknowledge it, and turn to God for forgiveness and the power to change it. Or B, we can deny it, pretend it isn't important, and refuse to do anything about it. The A group uh, kind of characterizes the the disciples as much as they they often forgot who they were with. Their their overall attitude was one of wanting to learn from him and acknowledging who he was. The religious leaders on the flip side were the B group, 
They are the ones that refused to acknowledge who he was, and they did not go to him for learning, for understanding, for light. And if we choose the latter, the denying or refusing to do anything about it, and we're children of God, well, then God will discipline us accordingly. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11 reads like this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, well then, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is such a valuable passage. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. God will discipline us because he loves us and his purpose for us is righteousness. His goal is to transform us into the image of his son. If we refuse to obey the Spirit's conviction and will not repent under his discipline, it is quite likely that he will set us aside as useless to him. And there is great concern that our salvation was never genuine. You see, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in verse 21, he continues, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Because I love God, I desire to please him and know him more deeply and intimately. I can't think of a more tragic and heartbreaking thing than to stand before God one day only to have him say to me, Mike, I showed you what you needed to do, but you refused to obey me so I could no longer use you. Did you not know me well enough to trust that I was doing it for your good so that we could draw even closer? Church family, I've been there. I sadly have to admit that there have been times when God has shown me some sin I needed to confess or some wrong I needed to make right, and I didn't want to. I refused to obey, and I tried to justify or excuse it away. David writes in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then read this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Have you ever felt that? Have you groaned under the weight of God's hand on you? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
Amen? You ever felt that? And then David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then we just want to repeat verse 1, don't we? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you are a child of God and you are in sin and you are not confessing it, you will feel that heavy weight of God's hand on your life because he desires to mold you and shape you into the image of his son and he can't when you are living in sin. David knew the agony that results from disobedience and unconfessed sin. I have felt that same weight, the heavy hand of the Lord. My bones felt like they were wasting away and there was no joy or peace. And you know what? Praise God, because that heavy hand was his hand of love on me. He would not leave me in my sin and disobedience. He had purposes and plans for me and that sin stood in the way and the same the same is true for you don't negate or refuse the convicting voice of the spirit humble yourself before it and if you are not yet a follower of christ then i want to warn you of the danger of ignoring or rejecting the spirit's prompting Look at what happened to the religious leaders. Their continued refusal to acknowledge what was right before them led to a downward spiral. John MacArthur lists four consequences of those who steadfastly refuse to see. Here they are. Number one, they seek darkness. Instead of coming to Jesus for light like the disciples did, they sought out men who were more spiritually blind than they were. Number two, they curse the light. The religious leaders not only ignored the signs, they attributed Jesus' power to the devil. Number three, they regress deeper into sin. Each step recorded in the Gospel of Matthew takes it up a notch. The religious leaders continue to make worse and worse decisions until they are finally plotting and performing a murder. And lastly, They are abandoned by God. Verse 4 in today's passage reads, So he, that's Jesus, left them and departed. The words in the Greek have the sense of leaving behind, abandoning. What a terrifying thing to think you came so close to salvation and forgiveness, but your persistent refusal to surrender, to humble yourself, meant being abandoned by God. And if you're abandoned by him, the source of goodness, love, purity, and holiness, what are you abandoned to? People, if you have heard God's voice speaking to your heart, if you have felt the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you ignore it at your peril. Respond immediately in humility and obedience. If there's something you need to deal with, but you just don't know how to proceed, come and talk to myself or Jermaine or Chris or any of our wives, if you'd prefer. We would delight to walk alongside you and and help you with this. What about today? Is there a leaven of today, the same kind of leaven in our North American society? 
Well, I'd really suggest it's the same thing. But there's two statements that I've heard often. I'm sure there are more, but these two um, really get at the same kind of thing. Number one, uh, there is a, a, a teaching that says that Jesus is just a myth. He didn't exist as a real person, right? It's really just saying he's not who he said he was. Bart Ehrman is a scholar who claims that human memory and oral tradition tend towards creative acts and are therefore quite untrustworthy. And there are many who take that to say that Jesus Christ was a myth, that he was just a regular guy, but his disciples just made it out to be more. It just became a bigger and bigger story over time. Now, so far, the majority of historians absolutely reject this Christ myth theory. But that's one of them. The the, second one that I have heard frequently is that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but nothing more. A great moral teacher, but nothing more. C.S. Lewis deals with this very well. I'm going to quote him because he says it's so much better than I could. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. People Satan's main and most powerful ploy has always been to get us to question God's word. It's how he undermined Eve's trust in the Garden of Eden, and he does the same now. He asked her then, did God really say? And he asks you and me the same question. Did God really say in his word that Jesus is his son? Does his word really require us to confess and repent of every sin? Even a white lie? By the way, there's no such thing. A lie is a lie regardless regardless of why we tell it. We need to constantly be on guard not to reject the prompting of the spirit or refuse to act on what God shows us. Finally, I just want to address the sign of Jonah. Several weeks ago, Chris dealt with this phrase in Matthew 12, but let me just take a minute or two in closing to reiterate the meaning of this statement. You'll recall that Jonah, in the midst of the storm at sea, was thrown overboard, and by the provision of God, was swallowed by a great fish, possibly a whale. We don't know for sure. He was in the belly of that fish for three days, after which the fish spit him up on shore. Whether the sailors saw him swallowed by the fish or not, they surely thought he was dead. His appearance on shore and in Nineveh would have been like the dead coming back to life. Jesus is referring to his death, burial, and resurrection by this statement. Like Jonah, he would be presumed dead, the difference being Jesus actually died. Like Jonah, he would spend three days buried, not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the earth. 
And then he would rise from the dead on the third day, signifying his sovereignty even over death and the grave. This was the only further sign the Pharisees and Sadducees were going to see. And it's the clearest sign Jesus gives to them, or to us, to validate his claims about himself. So the question for you today is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you allow the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees to pervade your thinking? Will you stubbornly and persistently refuse to accept Jesus for who he is, refuse to believe what he tells you about repentance and submission to his loving sovereignty? Or will you humble yourself before him, ask for the forgiveness he so freely and graciously offers, and find your meaning, purpose, and identity in him? And follower of Jesus, will you listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting and direction in your life? Will you tear down any walls of pride and stubbornness and give yourself wholly and completely to trusting Jesus and obeying those things that he lovingly calls you to do? I promise you, you will not regret it. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage to work through, and um, and as we do so, we are brought face-to-face so often with our own stubbornness, our own self-will. And Father, we just ask that, that your Holy Spirit would just tear down those walls, that we, would, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would desire to trust you, to walk in faith, to be your children if we are followers of yours, and to do what you have called us to do for your kingdom and for your glory and for our good, because you love us. Help us to trust Jesus more and more and to grow in our faith in him and our reliance on him. And Father, if there's someone here today, someone listening who who doesn't know you, Father, we pray that today they would just submit, that they would humbly lay down their independence and their stubborn refusal. And they would come to you and seek the forgiveness and the grace that you so freely offer. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.